Hello and welcome to Leftist Reading, a podcast where I'm a leftist and I read things. Today we're continuing with The Wretched of the Earth and continuing the chapter on national culture. The last reading talked about the ways in which the ways in which black people both in and outside of Africa get lumped into a singular broad black culture without being allowed have individual and distinct national cultures even though various European countries absolutely have independent national-based cultures, and it's important because of the different needs and conditions these countries have. A specific example is people from the US coming to an African conference and finding there is some common ground, but they are so fundamentally different that they form their own body to deal with US-specific issues. And some quick notes about this episode upcoming. One, there is a fairly lengthy poem included right near the end. There is still some more of the chapter itself after the poem. The poem, of course, is included in the text. I didn't just add it for my own fun. There are timestamps in the description around that. Also, this section of the reading uses a slur that I had not really heard before, uh, that in the text I just refer to as the W word. You really only need to know that it is a colonizer slur for people who are not white. So let's continue with this chapter. If the action of the native intellectual is limited historically, there remains nevertheless the fact that it contributes greatly to upholding and justifying the action of politicians. It is true that the attitude of the native intellectual sometimes takes on the aspect of a cult or of a religion. But if we really wish to analyze this attitude correctly, we will come to see that it is symptomatic of the intellectual's realization of the danger that he is running in cutting his last moorings and of breaking adrift from his people. This stated belief in a national culture is in fact an ardent, despairing turning toward anything that will afford him secure anchorage. In order to ensure his salvation and to escape from the supremacy of the white man's culture, The native feels the need to turn backward toward his unknown roots and to lose himself at whatever cost in his own barbarous people, because he feels he is becoming estranged. That is to say, because he feels that he is the living haunt of contradictions, which run the risk of becoming insurmountable. The native tears himself away from the swamp that may suck him down and accepts everything, decides to take all for granted and confirms everything, even though he may lose body and soul. The native finds that he is expected to answer for everything, and to all comers. He not only turns himself into the defender of his people's past, he is willing to be counted as one of them, and henceforward he is even capable of laughing at his past cowardice. This tearing away, painful and difficult though it may be, is however necessary. If it is not accomplished, there will be serious psycho-affective injuries, and the result will be individuals without an anchor, without a horizon, colorless, stateless, rootless, a race of angels. It will be also quite normal to hear certain natives declare, I speak as a Senegalese and as a Frenchman. I speak as an Algerian and as a Frenchman. The intellectual who is Arab and French or Nigerian and English, when he comes up against the need to take on two nationalities, chooses, if he wants to remain true to himself, 
the negation of one of these determinations. But most often, since they cannot or will not make a choice, such intellectuals gather together all the historical determining factors which have conditioned them and take up a fundamentally universal standpoint. This is because the native intellectual has thrown himself greedily upon Western culture, like adopted children who only stop investigating the new family framework at the moment when a minimum nucleus of security crystallizes in their psyche, the native intellectual will try to make European culture his own. He will not be content to get to know Rabelais and Diderot, Shakespeare and Edgar Allan Poe, he will bind them to his intelligence as closely as possible. La dame n'était pas seule, elle avait un mari, un mari très comme il faut, qui citait Racine et Corneille, et Voltaire et Rousseau, et le père Hugo, et le jeune Musset, et Guide et Valérie, et tant d'autres encore. Translation of this is in a footnote, so I'm just going to read it here. The lady was not alone. She had a most respectable husband, who knew how to quote Racine and Corneille, Voltaire and Rousseau, Victor Hugo and Musset, Guide, Valerie, and as many more again. End quote. But at the moment when the nationalist parties are mobilizing the people in the name of national independence, the native intellectual sometimes spurns these acquisitions, which he suddenly feels make him a stranger in his own land. It is always easier to proclaim rejection than actually to reject. The intellectual who through the medium of culture has filtered into Western civilization, who has managed to become part of the body of European culture, in other words, who has exchanged his own culture for another, will come to realize that the cultural matrix, which now he wishes to assume since he is anxious to appear original, can hardly supply any figureheads which will bear comparison with those, so many in number and so great in prestige, of the occupying power's civilization. History, of course, though nevertheless written by the Westerners and to serve their purposes, will be able to evaluate from time to time certain periods of African past. But standing face to face with his country at the present time, and observing clearly and objectively the events of today throughout the continent which he wants to make his own, the intellectual is terrified by the void, the degradation, and the savagery he sees there. Now he feels that he must get away from the white culture. He must seek his culture elsewhere, anywhere at all. And if he fails to find the substance of the culture of the same grandeur and scope as displayed by the ruling power, the native intellectual will very often fall back upon emotional attitudes, and will develop a psychology which is dominated by exceptional sensitivity and susceptibility. This withdrawal, which is due in the first instance to a begging of the question in his internal behaviour mechanism and his own character, brings out, above all, a reflex and contradiction which is muscular. This is sufficient explanation of the style of those native intellectuals who decide to give expression to this phase of consciousness which is in the process of being liberated. It is a harsh style, full of images, for the image is the drawbridge which allows unconscious energies to be scattered on the surrounding meadows. It is a vigorous style, alive with rhythms, struck through and through with bursting life. It is full of colour too, bronzed, sunbaked, and violent. 
This style, which in its time astonished the peoples of the West, has nothing racial about it, in spite of frequent statements to the contrary. It expresses above all a hand-to-hand struggle, and it reveals the need that man has to liberate himself from a part of his being which already contained the seeds of decay. Whether the fight is painful, quick, or inevitable, muscular action must substitute itself for concepts. If in the world of poetry this movement reaches unaccustomed heights, the fact remains that in the real world, the intellectual often follows up a blind alley. When at the height of his intercourse with his people, whatever they were or whatever they are, the intellectual decides to come down into the common paths of real life. He only brings back from his adventuring formulas, which are sterile in the extreme. He sets a high value on the customs, traditions, and the appearances of his people. But his inevitable, painful experience only seems to be a banal search for exoticism. The sari becomes sacred, and shoes that come from Paris or Italy are left off in favour of pampudis, while suddenly the language of the ruling power is felt to burn your lips. Finding your fellow countrymen sometimes means in this place to will to be a n-word. Not a n-word like all the other n-words, but a real n-word. A negro cur, just the sort of n-word that the white man wants you to be. Going back to your own people means to become a dirty w-word, to go native as much as you can, to become unrecognizable, and to cut off those wings that before you had allowed to grow. The native intellectual decides to make an inventory of the bad habits drawn from the colonial world, and hastens to remind everyone of the good old customs of the people, that people which he has decided contains all truth and goodness. The scandalized attitude with which the settlers who live in the colonial territory greet this new departure only serves to strengthen the native's decision. When the colonialists, who had tasted the sweets of their victory over these assimilated people, realize that these men whom they considered as saved souls are beginning to fall back into the ways of n-words, the whole system totters. Every native won over. Every native who had taken the pledge not only marks a failure for the colonial structure when he decides to lose himself and to go back to his own side, but also stands as a symbol for the uselessness and the shallowness of all the work that has been accomplished. Every native who goes back over the line is a radical condemnation of the methods and of the regime. And the native intellectual finds in the scandal he gives rise to a justification and an encouragement to persevere in the path he has chosen. If we wanted to trace in the works of native writers the different phases which characterize this evolution, we would find spread out before us a panorama on three levels. In the first phase, the native intellectual gives proof that he has assimilated the culture of the occupying power. His writings correspond, point by point, with those of his opposite numbers in the mother country. His inspiration is European, and we can easily link up these works with definite trends in the literature of the mother country. This is the period of unqualified assimilation. We find in this literature, coming from the colonies, the Parnassians, the Symbolists, and the Surrealists. In the second phase, we find the native is disturbed. He decides to remember what he is. This period of creative work approximately corresponds to that immersion which we may have just described. 
But since the native is not a part of his people, since he only has exterior relations with his people, he is content to recall their life only. Past happenings of the bygone days of his childhood will be brought up out of the depths of his memory. Old legends will be reinterpreted in the light of a borrowed aestheticism and of a conception of the world which was discovered under other skies. Sometimes this literature of just before the battle is dominated by humour and by allegory, but often too it is symptomatic of a period of distress and difficulty, where death is experienced and discussed too. We spew ourselves up, but already underneath, laughter can be heard. Finally, in the third phase, which is called the fighting phase, the native, after having tried to lose himself in the people and with the people, will, on the contrary, shake the people. Instead of according the people's lethargy and honoured place in his esteem, he turns himself into an awakener of the people. Hence comes a fighting literature, a revolutionary literature, and a national literature. During this phase, a great many men and women, who up till then would never have thought of producing a literary work, now that they find themselves in exceptional circumstances, in prison with the McKee, or on the eve of their execution, feel the need to speak up to their nation, to compose the sentence which expresses the heart of the people, and to become the mouthpiece of a new reality in action. The native intellectual, nevertheless, sooner or later, will realize that you do not show proof of your nation from its culture, but that you substantiate its existence in the fight which the people wage against the forces of occupation. No colonial system draws its justification from the fact that the territories it dominates are culturally non-existent. You will never make colonialism blush for shame by spreading out little-known cultural treasures under its eyes. At the very moment when the native intellectual is anxiously trying to create a cultural work, he fails to realize that he is utilizing techniques and language which are borrowed from the stranger in his country. He contents himself with stamping these instruments with a hallmark which he wishes to be national, but which is strangely reminiscent of exoticism. The native intellectual who comes back to his people, by way of cultural achievements, behaves in fact like a foreigner. Sometimes he has no hesitation in using a dialect in order to show his will to be as near as possible to the people, but the ideas that he expresses and the preoccupations he has taken up with have no common yardstick to measure the real situation which the men and the women of his country know. The culture that the intellectual leans toward is often no more than a stock of particularisms. He wishes to attach himself to the people, but instead he only catches hold of their outer garments. And these outer garments are merely the reflection of a hidden life, teeming and perpetually in motion. That extremely obvious objectivity, which seems to characterize a people, is in fact only the inert, already forsaken result of frequent, and not always very coherent, adaptations of a much more fundamental substance, which itself is continually being renewed. The man of culture, instead of setting out to find the substance, will let himself be hypnotized by these mummified fragments, which, because they are static and in fact symbols of negation and outward contrivances. Culture has never the translucidity of custom. It abhors all simplification. In its essence, 
it is opposed to custom, for custom is always the deterioration of culture. The desire to attach oneself to tradition, or bring abandoned traditions to life again, does not only mean going against the current of history, but also opposing one's own people. When a people undertakes an armed struggle, or even a political struggle, against a relentless colonialism, the significance of tradition changes. All that has made up the technique of passive resistance in the past may, during this phase, be radically condemned. In an underdeveloped country, during the period of struggle, traditions are fundamentally unstable and are shot through by centrifugal tendencies. This is why the intellectual often runs the risk of being out of date. The peoples who have carried on the struggle are more and more impervious to demagogy, and those who wish to follow them reveal themselves as nothing more than common opportunists. In other words, latecomers. In the sphere of plastic arts, for example, the native artist who wishes at whatever cost to create a national work of art shuts himself up in a stereotyped reproduction of details. These artists, who have nevertheless thoroughly studied modern techniques and who have taken part in the main trends of contemporary painting and architecture, turn their backs on foreign culture, deny it, and set out to look for a true national culture, setting great store on what they consider to be the constant principles of national art. But these people forget that the forms of thought and what it feeds on, together with modern techniques of information, language, and dress, have dialectically reorganized the people's intelligences, and that the constant principles which acted as safeguards during the colonial period are now undergoing extremely radical changes. The artist who has decided to illustrate the truths of the nation turns paradoxically toward the past and away from actual events. What he ultimately intends to embrace are in fact the cast-offs of thought, its shells and corpses, a knowledge which has been stabilized once and for all. But the native intellectual who wishes to create an authentic work of art must realize that the truths of a nation are in the first place its realities. He must go on until he has found the seething pot out of which the learning of the future will emerge. Before independence, the native painter was insensible to the national scene. He set a high value on non-figurative art, or more often specialized in still lifes. After independence, his anxiety to rejoin his people will confine him to the most detailed representation of reality. This is representative art, which has no internal rhythms, an art which is serene and immobile, evocative not of life, but of death. Enlightened circles are in ecstasies when confronted with this inner truth, which is so well expressed. But we have the right to ask if this truth is in fact a reality and if it is not already outworn and denied, called in question by the epoch through which the people are treading, out their path toward history. In the realm of poetry we may establish the same facts. After the period of assimilation characterized by rhyming poetry, the poetic tom-toms rhythms break through. This is a poetry of revolt, but it is also descriptive and analytical poetry. The poet ought, however, to understand that nothing can replace the seasoned, irrevocable taking up of arms on the people's side. Let us quote de Pestre once more. Quote, 
The lady was not alone. She had a husband. A husband who knew everything. But to tell the truth knew nothing. For you can't have culture without making concessions. You concede your flesh and blood to it. You concede your own self to others. By conceding you gain. Classicism and Romanticism. And all that our souls are steeped in. End quote. Footnote 1. The native poet who is preoccupied with creating a national work of art and who is determined to describe his people fails in his aim, for he is not yet ready to make that fundamental concession that de Pestreux speaks of. The French poet René Char shows his understanding of the difficulty when he reminds us that, quote, the poem emerges out of a subjective imposition and an objective choice. A poem is the assembling and moving together of determining original values in contemporary relation with someone that these circumstances bring to the front. End quote. Footnote 2. Yes, the first duty of the native poet is to see clearly the people he has chosen as the subject of his work of art. He cannot go forward resolutely unless he first realizes the extent of his estrangement from them. We have taken everything from the other side, and the other side gives us nothing, unless by a thousand detours we swing finally round in their direction. Unless by ten thousand wiles and a hundred thousand tricks, they manage to draw us toward them, to seduce us and to imprison us. Taking means in nearly every case being taken, Thus, it is not enough to try to free oneself by repeating proclamations and denials. It is not enough to try to get back to the people in that past out of which they have already emerged. Rather, we must join them in that fluctuating movement which they are just giving a shape to, and which, as soon as it has started, will be the signal for everything to be called in question. Let there be no mistake about it. It is to this zone of occult instability where the people dwell that we must come, and it is there that our souls are crystallized, and that our perceptions and our lives are transfused with light. Keita Fadeba, today Minister of Internal Today Minister of Internal Affairs in the Republic of Guinea, when he was the director of the African Ballet, did not play any tricks with the reality which the people of Guinea offered him. He interpreted all the rhythmic images of his country from a revolutionary standpoint. But he did more. In his poetic works, which are not well known, we find a constant desire to define accurately the historic moments of the struggle and to mark off the field in which they were to be unfolded, the actions and ideas around which the popular will would crystallize. Here is a poem by Keita Fodeba, which is a true invitation to thought to demystification, and to battle. African Dawn. This poem regularly notes musical accompaniment. I am just going to read that accompaniment, but know that that's what I'm doing when I say guitar music. Dawn was breaking. The little village, which had danced half the night to the sound of its tom-toms, was waking slowly. Ragged shepherds playing their flutes were leading their flocks down into the valley. The girls of the village, with their canaries, followed one by one along the winding path that leads to the fountain. In the marabou's courtyard, a group of children were softly chanting in chorus some verses from the Quran. Guitar music. Dawn was breaking. Dawn. The fight between night and day. But the night was exhausted and could fight no more, 
and slowly died. A few rays of the sun, the forerunners of this victory of the day, still hovered on the horizon, pale and timid, while the last stars gently glided under the mass of clouds, crimson like the blooming flamboyant flowers. Guitar music. Dawn was breaking, and down at the end of the vast plain with its purple contours, the silhouette of a bent man tilling the ground could be seen, the silhouette of Naman the laborer. Each time he lifted his hoe, the frightened birds rose, and flew swiftly away to find the quiet banks of the Juliba, the great Niger River. The man's grey cotton trousers, soaked by the dew, flapped against the grass on either side, sweating, unresting, always bent over. He worked with his hoe, for the seed had to be sown before the next rains came. Chora music. Dawn was breaking, still breaking. The sparrows circled amongst the leaves announcing the day. On the damp track leading to the plain, a child, carrying his little quiver of arrows round him like a bandolier, was running breathless toward Naman. He called out, Brother Naman, the headman of the village wants you to come to the council tree. Chora music. The labourer, surprised by such a message so early in the morning, laid down his hoe and walked toward the village, which now was shining in the beams of the rising sun. Already, the old men of the village were sitting under the tree, looking more solemn than ever. Beside them, a man in uniform, a district guard, sat impassively, quietly smoking his pipe. Cora music. The man took his place on the sheepskin. The headman spokesman stood up to announce to the assembly the will of the old men. The white men have sent a district guard to ask for a man from the village who will go to the war in their country. The chief men, after taking counsel together, have decided to send the young man who is the best representative of our race, so that he may go and give proof to the white men of that courage which has always been a feature of our manding. Guitar music. Naman was thus officially marked out. For every evening the village girls praised his great stature and muscular appearance in musical couplets. Gentle Kadia, his young wife, overwhelmed by the news, suddenly ceased grinding corn, put the mortar away under the barn, and without saying a word, shut herself into her hut to weep over her misfortune with stifled sobs. For death had taken her first husband, and she could not believe that now the white people had taken Naman from her. Naman, who was the centre of all her new-sprung hopes. Guitar Music The next day, in spite of her tears and lamentations, the full-toned drumming of the war tom-toms accompanied Naman to the village's little harbour, where he boarded a trawler which was going to the district capital. That night, instead of dancing in the marketplace, as they usually did, the village girls came to keep watch in Naman's outer room, and there told their tales until morning around a wood fire. Guitar music. Several months went by without any news of Naman reaching the village. Kadia was so worried that she went to the cunning fetish worker from the neighboring village. The village elders themselves held a short secret council on the matter, but nothing came of it.
Cora music. At last one day, a letter from the man came to the village, to Katia's address. She was worried as to what was happening to her husband, and so that same night she came, after hours of tired walking, to the capital of the district, where a translator read the letter to her. Naman was in North Africa. He was well, and he asked for news of the harvest, of the feastings, the river, the dances, the council tree. In fact, for news of all the village. Balafo music. That night, the old women of the village honoured Katia by allowing her to come to the courtyard of the oldest woman and listen to the talk that went on nightly among them. The headman of the village, happy to have heard news of Naman, gave a great banquet to all the beggars of the neighbourhood. Balafo music. Again several months went by, and everyone was once more anxious, for nothing more was heard of Naman. Kadia was thinking of going again to consult the fetish worker when she received a second letter. Naman, after passing through Corsica and Italy, was now in Germany, and was proud of having been decorated. Balafo music. But the next time, there was only a postcard, to say that Naman had been made prisoner by the Germans. This news weighed heavily on the village. The old men held council, and decided that henceforward Naman would be allowed to dance the Duga, the sacred dance of the vultures that no one who has not performed some outstanding feat is allowed to dance. That dance of the Mali emperors, of which every step is a stage in the history of the Mali race. Kadia found consolation in the fact that her husband had been raised to the dignity of a hero of his country. Guitar music. Time went by. A year followed another. And Naman was still in Germany. He did not write anymore. Guitar music. One fine day, the village headman received word from Dakar that Naman would soon be home. The mutter of the tom-toms was at once heard. There was dancing and singing till dawn. The village girls composed new songs for his homecoming, for the old men who were the devotees of the Duga spoke no more about that famous dance of the manding. Tom-toms. But a month later, Corporal Musa, a great friend of Naman's, wrote a tragic letter to Kadia. Dawn was breaking. We were at Tiarwa sur in the course of a widespread dispute between us and our white officers from Dakar. A bullet struck Naman. He lies in the land of Senegal. Guitar music. Yes, dawn was breaking. The first rays of the sun hardly touched the surface of the sea as they gilded its little foam-flecked waves. Stirred by the breeze, the palm trees gently bent their trunks down toward the ocean, as if saddened by the morning's battle. The crows came in noisy flocks to warn the neighborhood by their cawing of the tragedy that was staining the dawn at Tiarwa with blood, and in the flaming blue sky, just above Naman's body, a huge vulture was hovering heavily. It seemed to say to him, Naman, you have not danced that dance that is named after me. Others will dance it.
Korra music. End quote. If I have chosen to quote this long poem, it is on account of its unquestioned pedagogical value. Here, things are clear. It is a precise, forward-looking exposition. The understanding of the poem is not merely an intellectual advance, but a political advance. To understand this poem is to understand the part one has played, to recognize one's advance, and to furbish up one's weapons. There's not a single colonized person who will not receive the message that this poem holds. Naman, the hero of the battlefields of Europe, Naman who eternally ensures the power and perenniality of the mother country, Naman is machine-gunned by the police force at the very moment that he comes back to the country of his birth. And this is Setif in 1945. This is Fort Le France, this is Saigon, Dakar, and Lagos. All those N-words, all those W-words, who fought to defend the liberty of France, or for British civilization, recognize themselves in this poem by Keita Fodeba. But Keita Fodeba sees further. In colonized countries, colonialism, after having made use of the natives on the battlefields, uses them as trained soldiers to put down the movements of independence. The ex-service associations are, in the colonies, one of the most anti-nationalist elements which exist. The poet Keita Fodeba was training the Minister of Internal Affairs of the Republic of Guinea to frustrate the plots organized by French colonialism. The French Secret Service intended to use, among other means, the ex-servicemen to break up the young, independent Guinean state. The colonized man who writes for his people ought to use the past with the intention of opening the future, as an invitation to action and a basis for hope. But to ensure that hope and to give it form, he must take part in action and throw himself body and soul into the national struggle. You may speak about everything under the sun, but when you decide to speak of that unique thing in man's life that is represented by the fact of opening up new horizons, by bringing light to your own country, and by raising yourself and your people to their feet, then you must collaborate on the physical plane. And that's it for today's reading. If you have questions, comments, corrections, suggestions, or anything else, you can email leftistreading at gmail.com or contact the show on Twitter at leftistreading. The intro and outro music is Decisions by Eric Medias. You can go to soundimage.org to find it and lots of other music. This podcast is hosted on the Abnormal Mapping Network. You can go to abnormalmapping.com to find this and lots of other leftist podcasts. And that'll do it for this week. Thank you for listening. Keep reading.